Scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, verses, chapter 5, verses 24 to 30. Please open your Bible to that passage. Again, we're reading from the book of John, 5, verses 24 to 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we do see you as worthy of praise. We see you as worthy of all honor and glory, in majesty and dominion, in power and authority. Lord, we declare that, that you are the God of glory, the Lord of grace. Yahweh, who is compassionate and gracious, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who is slow to anger, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin and yet will not do so in a way that leaves the guilty unpunished. Lord, what a... What a a majestic revelation of who you are, your glory that you gave to Moses, that you've preserved for us and that you've ultimately demonstrated before our eyes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the compassion that we see revealed in Jesus. Thank you for the mercy that is extended to us through his hands, these hands that we have touched, as John says in 1 John. Thank you for this, this love and this grace that you have poured out abundantly upon all who have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for these reasons, you are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our honor and our worship as is your son. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning, as in our singing, in our praying, in our time, in your word, preaching and listening, in our response to what we're about to hear, uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would give us grace by your spirit to claim the triune God in faith. To lift high your name in worship and with adoration and to praise you as the one worthy, the one worthy of our praise. Lord, be with us. We pray that you would open your word to us, open our eyes to see and behold wondrous things out of your law. And we pray that, Father, as we're seeing these wondrous things, that you would unite our hearts to fear your holy name. May we join the song of the seraph and the cherub that cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Give us eyes to see and hearts to respond like that, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started looking at John 5.20, or at least a theme that's given to us in John 5.20, uh, where Jesus says that there are greater works that his Father would give to him to do so that as he would do them, we and all the world would marvel over what we see revealed of the Father through the Son. Verses 21 to 23, it tells us what these greater works are. Um, in verse 21, the, the first greater work that Jesus mentions is his work of giving life to the dead. 
just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. So the Son says, I'm going to do that work too. And I do that so that you would marvel. And then the second work is in verses 22 to 23, where the Father entrusts all judgment to the Son, and the Son executes judgment on behalf of his Father. And in such a way that the world would marvel. Now, as we started looking at last week, there are two ways that these greater works are demonstrated in the life of our Lord. And uh, the first is through the spiritual resurrection of Christ's people. So the first way that these greater works manifest or are demonstrated in giving life to the dead and executing judgment, or we could say saving from judgment, the first way that that manifests is in the spiritual resurrection of Christ's people. When he, by his almighty voice, calls forth sinners to new life out of spiritual death and into union with him in his resurrection life, he is demonstrating his power and his authority to give life and to execute judgment. We saw that in verse 25. Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As we said last week, Jesus is clearly talking about a resurrection here, but he's not speaking of a future physical resurrection. And we know that in, from a, from a, or for a couple of reasons. Number one, this resurrection Jesus is talking about in verse 25 is a resurrection that's happening right now. Jesus says the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That means that this resurrection to new life is taking place at this moment. And then secondly, that resurrection is only experienced by some people. Jesus says it's only those who hear his voice who experience that resurrection to new life. They are the ones who will live. Now that's different than the universal physical day of judgment that we're going to look at in just a moment. And it tells us that Jesus is talking about a kind of resurrection that is taking place prior to that final day kind of resurrection that can only be described as the resurrection of the spiritually dead to new spiritual life. Now, so as Jesus, with his almighty voice, causes the spiritually dead sinner to be brought to new life, that is a demonstration of the reality that Christ has all power and authority to give life to whom he will. And I rejoice in that. I rejoice in the sovereignty of Jesus to extend life to those whom He chooses to extend life. Because if you are one of those who have heard the voice of the shepherd calling your name, you need to understand the intimacy involved in that. Jesus knew your name and He called you out of death and into His life. That's a, that's a magnificent expression of the love of the Son of God for His people. Well, at any rate, what this means, this makes every believer in Christ a living demonstration of the Son of God's power to give life according to His will. You are a testimony, if you are a believer, you are a testimony to the saving power of Christ. It should be. Yeah, amen. We should rejoice in that. Yeah. All right, so that's a recap from last week. <clears throat> so that's one way that Jesus demonstrates His power and his authority to raise the dead and execute judgment is through the spiritual resurrection of his people. Now the second way that he mentions in this, in this uh, chapter that these greater works are going to be demonstrated is through the physical resurrection of all people. Jesus gets to this in verses 28 and 29 when he says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming. Notice what's missing. It's not right now. It's something future. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or the resurrection of judgment. So here it's obvious that Jesus is speaking of a physical resurrection of all people on the day of judgment. That's plainly what he says. All who are in the graves, they will hear his voice and they will come forth. That's a, that's a comprehensive statement. That's a, a universal experience 
that every person who has belonged to the human race will experience on that final day. Everyone participates in this resurrection. As Revelation 20, verses 12 through 13 explained to us, this is a day when all people, great and small, will be brought to stand before God and to be judged according to what is written in the books. What's written in the books, that's the account of your life. Every detail. Jesus says that judgment will be so exact and so perfect that it will extend even to the very words that come out of our mouths. Our thoughts and our intentions will be laid bare before the holy judgment seat of God and no one will escape that divine appointment with the Lord. Jesus says all will come out of the tombs, all will come out of the graves, and they will be judged. Revelation 20, even the sea and death and Hades will give up their dead before the judgment seat of God. That's quite a thought. Death itself will spit you out at the command of Jesus Christ. Hades will, 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 will hurl you out of its holding place so that you can stand before the Lord of glory, or at least all people will stand. And Jesus, this is the amazing part, and what you need to really, you need to put yourself in the shoes of these religious leaders in Jerusalem. God had prophesied of this day of judgment many times in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 2, for example, this day when the Lord alone is exalted and all humanity is humbled and the pride of man is brought low. They knew very well about the teaching of universal judgment that was to come. And here in John chapter 5, Jesus looks to these Jewish leaders and says, that day will be the greatest demonstration of my power and my glory. Because that final day will be initiated by the power and authority of my command. Put yourself in their shoes. Here's this man standing before you. This thing that God has declared all the world will experience. This great day of resurrection. This great day of judgment. And Jesus looks at them and says, it's my command that's going to bring that to pass. And that will be the greatest demonstration of my power and my authority. That's a radical statement. We might ask, what proof does Jesus give to these religious leaders to show that this claim is true? Well, in verses 31 to 47, which we will eventually get to, Jesus is going to point out, or at least point to, multiple witnesses as proof that what he's saying is true. He's going to point to John the Baptist and the testimony of John the Baptist. He's going to point to the works that the Father gave him to do and how that bears witness to who he is. He's going to point to the testimony of the Father in the Scriptures. And all of these corroborating what he is saying about himself. We could even point out that ultimately, Acts 17.31 says that Christ's own resurrection from the dead will prove that his words stated in John chapter 5 are true words. It's his resurrection from the dead that the Father holds before all the world and says, this is the one whom I have appointed to be your judge, and I will judge you in righteousness through him. So the resurrection is the Father's universal verification of every word his Son ever spoke. So those could be proofs that we could point to to say, what Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29 is true. All of that's good evidence, but what I want you to see in these verses in John 5 is what Jesus offers as proof in this context. In this context, the proof that Jesus offers to demonstrate that he will bring about the physical resurrection then, in the future is his power to bring about the spiritual resurrection now. What Jesus offers to these religious leaders as proof that he is the one who will initiate the day of judgment, he is the one who will call forth the dead out of their graves by the power of his command, the proof that Jesus gives to these religious leaders is the evidence of calling forth sinners into a spiritual resurrection now. See, you've got, you got to see this. What Jesus is doing in this chapter is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. 
He first speaks of his power and authority to raise sinners to spiritual life, a spiritual resurrection. And then he says to these Jewish leaders, don't marvel that I said that. Don't marvel at what I just told you. Don't don't be amazed. Don't be shocked and and caused to stumble over the fact that I've said I will bring sinners to new life. Because the hour is coming when my power will bring about the final universal resurrection. It's that lesser to greater. In other words, the spiritual resurrection of Christ's people proves that Jesus is the one who will command the physical resurrection of all people. The fact that Jesus is the one in charge of granting eternal life now and delivering from judgment and death now in the present, that proves that he is the one who will command all the dead back to life and administer divine judgment upon them in the future. Now I want you to think about something before we move on from that point, and it's, it's something that I said last week, but I couldn't help but come back to it again. One of the greatest demonstrations of the power of Christ that he has left as a witness in this world is the church. You remember what what Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The fact that the church even exists at all was ever founded or continues to grow across the globe today is an expression of the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is that purposefully, Jesus has left the church as a witness to his power to all the world. So the church becomes this testimony of Christ to the eyes of the watching world where Jesus is demonstrating the reality of His Lordship and the power and glory of His name through His church to the world. The fact that the church exists at all, right? No matter how hard the world oppresses it, No matter what deceptive tactics demonic powers will seek to use to make the church seem obsolete or make her message seem untrue, they will never be able to eradicate the life-giving power of Christ that is manifestly working in the church. And I, I want you to get this because this is what you are, Oak Ridge. Like you are a demonstration of Christ's own power, of Christ's own authority. That's who you are. You are the fruit and the evidence of Christ's power and glory that he has left for a short time as a testimony in this world. He has not abandoned us to this world. Praise the Lord. We're only here for a short time, but while we are here, we are active witnesses to the power of Jesus Christ. You are a part of the Son's testimony to the world that He is Lord, and that one day every knee will bow to Him. And you may feel, I I understand, you may feel like you are just a small part, maybe just an insignificant part in the grand scheme of things. You may feel that, that, that you just kind of disappear under the weight of, of everything that's going on in the world. Fading into the shadows and unrecognized and unimportant and insignificant. But that is not how Christ sees you. And you need to get this, beloved. You need to understand this. You as an individual will, were called forth by the power of Christ to new life in His name. What does that show you about how Jesus views you? He didn't just call this general mass of people, invite them to to, to receive life if they want it. No, He came to you while you were dead in your sin, and He spoke your name and called you to union with Himself. What does that say about the way Jesus views you? You are His recreation. He called you by name when He brought you to new life and salvation. He exercised His almighty divine power to raise you up from the spiritually dead. And then He filled you with His Spirit and set you walking in newness of life in fellowship with Him. Everywhere you go, 
You are a living witness to the power and authority of Jesus Christ. You are an aroma of life to those who are being saved, and you are an aroma of death to those who are perishing. But either way, you are Christ's aroma in this world. And that's how Jesus sees you. Everywhere he has purposed for your feet to go, he has purposefully planted you there to spread the aroma, the fragrance of his name. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. You shouldn't be afraid of letting that light shine in your context. You shouldn't be afraid to let the salt spill out of your shaker when the world agitates you. We all get agitated. Don't get all hyper-spiritual. You know, we all get bothered by the things that are going on in this world. We get bothered by the relationships that we're in. But what we shouldn't allow those things to do is cause our salt shakers to stop up when we experience those kinds of relational trials. Yes, the world will resist us, but as you live in Christ's resurrection life that he has given you, you are spreading the aroma of Christ everywhere you go, an aroma of his power, a testament to his great glory that one day, that will one day at the day of resurrection be put on full display for all to see. That simply, that just astounds me to think That the testimony Christ is content to leave with the world as proof of his lordship is his church. Not not the kind of signs and the kind of wonders and the kind of miracles that the world demands to see from us or from him. Rather, the spirit-wrought miracle of a local gathering of people who with one heart and one mind, even though stumbling and bumbling along, are still nevertheless pursuing righteousness together and pursuing faith in His name and love and peace together in unity with all those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. See, that's, that's the demonstration of Christ's of Christ great power in this world. And that's what you are. I, I don't want you to miss that. That's why the church must be one of the greatest, one of the greatest things in our lives as believers. The, the love for the people of Christ must be highest above all else in this world. So in this time that's now, the church is the sign and a proof of Christ's power and glory that will, in the hour that's coming, be fully demonstrated on the day of resurrection. Now, Jesus says in John 5, 29, that even though all will experience this final resurrection, not everyone will experience it in the same way. On that final day, every single person will be raised from the dead and will be divided into into two separate groups. As Jesus says here, some will be raised to a resurrection of life and others will be raised to a resurrection of condemnation or a resurrection of judgment. In other words, the day of resurrection will be the great day of sifting. That will be the day of separating the wheat from the tares. That will be the day of driving away the chaff and gathering Christ's wheat into his barn. Or as Daniel 12.2 puts it, that's the day when many will be raised to everlasting life, but others will be raised to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Jesus spoke of this reality often. For example, in Matthew 25, 31 to 32, he says that at his second coming, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. What I want to point out here is that Jesus speaks of this day in terms of stark exclusivity. Every person will find himself or herself either gathered in with the sheep or consigned to the goats. There's no third category here. There's no place of neutrality. There's no middle group of moral people who, though they were good, didn't quite love Jesus. No, Jesus said you're either for him or you're what? Or you're against him. You're either burning hot on fire for him, or you are cold, dead to him 
He will not allow a lukewarm category to abide. Remember what he says to those who are lukewarm. He will, not, he will violently expel the lukewarm from his midst. And so there are only two groups at the last day into which all humanity will be categorized and sifted. It really is a surreal thought to just contemplate for a moment that one day, that's, that's where you're going to be. In one of these two groups. Probably the most important question we can ask in light of that is, how can we know which group we're going to be in? Or according to Jesus in verse 29, what determines which group a person will be in for all eternity? What does Jesus use to decide who gets into one group or who gets into the other? Verse 29 gives us the answer. What does Jesus say there? It's those who do good who are raised to a what? Resurrection of life. Those who do evil are raised to what? A resurrection of condemnation. Now pay attention to what Jesus said. Those who do good are raised to life. Those who do evil are raised to judgment. Isn't that just a little shocking to hear Jesus speak in those terms? Maybe to those of us who, who staunchly hold to the doctrines of the Reformation, this might even be offensive. Those of us who believe in justification by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and not according to our works, but by faith in His name. Yet here Jesus says very plainly that the determiner for who gets life and who gets condemnation are the deeds of that person's life. Doesn't that seem as though Jesus says the resurrection that, that, we, that the resurrection we will participate in is determined by our works? There are many who do believe that. Roman Catholics, for example, they don't believe that grace actually saves you but they believe that grace gives you the power to be saved. And as long as you use that power to walk down the road to salvation, you're going to be okay. Or Mormonism. Mormons, uh, this is uh, from 2 Nephi 25, verse 23 in the Book of Mormon. It says, we know that we are saved by grace after we have done all that we can do. So you do the best that you can. You do as much as you possibly can. And then at the end of it, when God is weighing out all that you've done, then grace comes in and supplements what was lacking. Now if we asked people who believed things like that, where they see that being taught in the Bible, some might point to this verse in John 5 and say, see, it's right there. Jesus says right there, it's according to your deeds. What deeds did you do? Well, that's going to determine what resurrection you experience. And to be clear, doesn't the Holy Spirit very often say in Scripture that on the day of judgment, we will be judged according to our deeds? Haven't you read that before? Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Let me just give you some examples. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. On the day of judgment, the Lord will render to every man according to his deeds. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may be recompensed or may be rewarded for the deeds we've done in the body, whether good deeds or evil deeds. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, God the Father will judge everyone impartially based on what? According to your works. Revelation 20, verse 12, we've already read this. When the dead, great and small, are brought before God for judgment, they will be judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. Now, and even though Christians can get confused about this, it's important for you to understand that Scripture says even believers will face judgment in the presence of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Paul speaking to a group of believers in Rome. He says, 
we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians will come into condemnation before the judgment seat of God, right? I mean, that's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken all of that condemnation upon himself, but that does not mean that we will not stand before the judge and give an account of our lives. All right, so it's abundantly clear in Scripture that when Christ judges the world, he's going to judge the world according to people's deeds. He's going to judge each one of us according to our deeds. But how does that fit with our cherished Reformation doctrines of sola gratia, and sola fide, and solus Christus? That according to Scripture, salvation is by grace alone and through faith alone and in Christ alone. If Jesus says that we will be judged according to our deeds and that the resurrection we experience will be according to the deeds we have done, then how can our salvation not be by works? See the connection of the question there? Maybe I could boil this down to two questions, and we'll deal with these in, in our time, the rest of our time. Two questions. Is Jesus here teaching salvation by works? And secondly... Do we have to do good in order to receive the resurrection of life from his hand? Two different questions, but very similar. Is Jesus teaching salvation by works in this verse? John 5, 29. And secondly, do we have to do good? Do we have to do good? Is it required that we do good deeds in order to receive the resurrection of life from his hand? Well, to those questions, we're going to answer no, and we're going to answer yes. To the first question, let's look at that one. Number one, if we ask, is Jesus teaching us that we are saved by our works, what must we say? No. No, Jesus is not teaching that we're saved by our works. Scripture is clear. Your eternal salvation is not dependent upon whether or not you've done enough good deeds to earn it. You can't do enough good deeds to earn salvation from God's end. You were created by God to be perfect, to be spotless and without blemish from beginning of your existence to the end of eternity. And you've never done that a moment in your life. So even if from this point forward you determined I'm going to do everything I can to keep the law of God perfectly with my whole heart and all of my mind, I'm going to love God with all that I am from this point forward. Let's just say you were given strength to do that. You still have how many years of sin behind you? 36? My, on my part? Yeah? How would we ever make up for that? You can't make up for the wrongs you've already committed against an infinitely holy and righteous God. He demands perfection from you. And if you offer Him nothing but perfection for the rest of your life, you've still got the former part of your life you've got to deal with. And you can never make up for that. No, salvation, clearly in Scripture, salvation is a gift of God's free, unmerited, sovereign grace. Grace that is held out to us and secured by nothing less than the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation in your life is not secured by your own works. It's secured by Jesus' works. I love what R.C. Sproul used to say, right? You guys listen to R.C. Sproul ever? Yeah. What's that? Maybe you're thinking of something different. Yeah, we'll say it. That's right. Yeah, we've got Christ's righteousness imputed to us, right? That's what enables us to stand perfectly and holy and without blemish before the presence of God. It's Christ's righteousness. The gift of righteousness, Romans 5.17 calls it. That's not what I'm thinking of, though. That's a good one. R.C. Sproul used to say that you and I most definitely are saved by works. We're just not saved by our works. Our salvation is built upon the works of another, right? That's what... That's what Corbin's getting at in, that, in talking about the imputation, the, the accrediting of the righteousness of Christ to our account in the courtroom of God. 
Where God, when God justifies us, when He declares us righteous, it's not because we've made a good decision and decided to follow Jesus. That's not the basis of our justification. The basis of being declared righteous in the presence of God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That righteousness that He fulfilled for us. That perfect life of communion and holiness with His Father that He lived in our stead. See, Jesus didn't just die in our place. He lived in our place. He fully fulfilled the righteousness, righteous law of God for us and for our benefit so that when we put our faith in Jesus, an empty hand offering Him nothing but grabbing on to what He offers to us, He accredits to us His own righteousness and perfect standing in the eyes of His Father. Jesus' works are what saves us, not ours. It's not as though we simply need to make sure that our good outweighs our bad either. There are unfortunately many who do believe that, who think that all they need to do is try their best to keep the Ten Commandments and to do enough good and to be a good person, and in the end, God will accept them. Because after all, they're not that bad. What they don't realize is what Paul says in Galatians 5.4. That in relying on your own works, you actually sever yourself from Christ and you fall from God's grace. So you've got, this, you've got these two ways of being saved before the Lord. Of standing in His presence acceptable. One way is by perfectly fulfilling His righteous law. And if you're going to go that way, you've got to make sure every single one of those commandments is ticked off. And not only ticked off partially, but ticked off fully. That it is a perpetual act of obedience to the perfect law of God from the beginning of your existence to the end of your days. And oh, by the way, you also have to overcome this issue of your fallenness in Adam, who was our representative head the one who sinned against the Lord on behalf of all humanity and wound up consigning all humanity to judgment, condemnation, that's Romans 5. Seems like a fool's errand to go that way, but if you want to try to to earn salvation with God based upon the works of the law and your own keeping of those righteous works, then God will gladly let you do that, but He's going to judge you according to the perfect standard of that law. Remember what James says. He who keeps the law but stumbles even at one point, he's guilty of breaking how much of the law? All of it. It's perfect obedience or it's nothing. It's literally all or nothing. The other way of salvation is fully and utterly renouncing yourself and relying completely upon Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And God promises that everyone who holds out that empty hand to grab onto Jesus will be saved. So this one is questionable, but it's not really questionable. But in the minds of people who want to try to be good enough to be acceptable before God, there's always that doubt. Well, I hope I've done enough. Maybe I've been good enough for God, though God says none are good, not even one. But on the other side, there's absolute assurance of acceptance when we renounce relying on ourselves and fully and totally and utterly rely upon another, the beloved Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what's unfortunate is that there are some who hear that gospel preached in church pews every single Sunday and yet fail to rid themselves of that work-based understanding of salvation. You ask them if they're saved and they say, well, of course I'm saved. You say, well, how do you know? And they might respond with something like this. Well, I go to church. I pay my tithe. I read my Bible. I I prayed this morning. I do good to people. I shared the Gospel with someone last week. Of course, I'm saved. I'm, I'm doing all these things. What's noticeably missing from that confession? Christ. Christ is missing. 
That's still a focus on you and on what you've done and whether you've done something that's acceptable in the eyes of God. That is not an expression of you renouncing yourself and saying, I'm in Jesus and He's all my hope. That's my assurance of salvation. I, two weeks before I was saved, two weeks before the Lord saved me, I was preaching the gospel to my fellow football team members. I've told you this before, they called me the preacher because I would often quote to them scripture and talk about God, but I wasn't even saved. I wasn't even a believer. When the Lord came and saved me, all those empty hopes that I had of being right with God, whether it was being baptized as a baby in the Lutheran church, whether it was being confirmed, uh, partaking in communion, just kind of being a good kid, you know, reading the Bible every now and then and, and, and memorizing the books of the Bible, going through confirmation classes, like all of that stuff. You know, when I was confirmed, by the way, I preached my first sermon on my confirmation day. I've never heard that happening to anyone else being confirmed in the Lutheran church. But for some reason, my, the pastor of the church where I grew up said, nope, you're going to preach a sermon on your confirmation day. So I was 11 years old when I preached my first sermon. And it was really good, actually. Yeah. It was. It doctrinally true. It had all kinds of gospel-rich truth. It was on John 3.16. And it was a great sermon as far as the content is concerned. But I did all that as an unbeliever. And it wasn't until I was 16 when the Lord opened, pulled the veil back of the darkness of my life and I could actually see myself in relation to His light and His glory. That's when I realized all of that stuff is garbage. And none of that is enough. None of that is enough to give me a secured place in the presence of God. It doesn't matter how much I went to church. It doesn't matter if I was confirmed. It doesn't matter how much of the scriptures I had read and memorized. And it didn't matter if I had preached. There are going to be a lot of preachers who find their place in hell at the last day. God forbid I be one of them. But on that day when the Lord saved me, I realized nothing short of perfect righteousness will avail for me in the presence of God. And by the gospel, by the work of Christ, God has provided that gift for me and for all who will receive it in faith. So we must say, right, with Galatians 2.16, which is so clear, a man is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus and through faith alone. So we must say, no, Jesus is not teaching here in John 5.29 that he will raise people to a resurrection of life who have done enough good deeds to earn it. He's not teaching that we're saved by our works. So, second question. However, if we ask, a, if we ask whether a person has to do good in order to receive the resurrection of life, what must our answer be? Yeah. Yes. In order to receive a resurrection of life, it is required that you have a life of good deeds. Isn't that what Jesus says here? Now, I want to be very careful in what I mean by that. And what Scripture teaches. I want to make sure I explain that clearly. Scripture affirms that our works are an important part of our salvation. Do you know that? Let's change the wording here. Scripture affirms that your sanctification is an important, vital part of your salvation. If you are not being sanctified, you are not being saved. Scripture affirms that our works are an important part of our salvation, not because our works earn salvation, but because our works confirm it. Good works do not earn salvation, but they do demonstrate that a person has truly experienced salvation. James 2.14, James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? This gets back to one of those controversies from like the 70s and 80s, the, the lordship controversies. 
that were taking place in many Baptist circles. Can Jesus be your Savior if Jesus is not your Lord? No. Jesus said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do what I say? There's not a saving relationship there, no matter what is professed, if you're not living a life of active obedience to the Lord's commands. James says it this way, if, if, you have, if you say you have faith, but you don't have works, can that kind of faith save you? And his answer is no. Verse 17, he says, a faith that does not produce works is a dead faith. It is a worthless, useless, empty profession of faith that has no substance to it. Verse 18, he says in James chapter 2, verse 18, he says, but someone may say, you have faith and I have works. And James says, well, I'll tell you what, you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see the point he's making there. True faith manifests with certain kinds of works in a believer's life. That is, what works, um, what works are in a li- the life of a believer, they are the outward manifestation of true faith in that person's life. So just think about it. If you truly believe in God, and you believe in His Son, and you believe in His teachings, then that belief is going to have an impact on the way you live your life. Right? Amen? If you believe that the stove is hot, what are you not going to do? If you have any sense, you're not going to go put your hand on it, right? You obviously believe that these wonderfully comfortable pews are capable of holding you up. How do I know that? Because you sat down in them. I quit banging on this pulpit like I used to because I was worried that I might break it. Faith, what we believe about something is always demonstrated in our actions. Always. So you can profess to say that you believe a certain thing, but if you don't actually live in, according to, in accordance with that profession, then your actions are betraying you. So if you say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus' people, and I'm going to go to heaven one day, and yet you spend your private time at home looking at pornography, indulging lusts of the flesh, reading trashy novels, watching movies that are inappropriate, listening to kinds of music that is dishonoring to the Lord? Which one should be taken as credible? Your profession or your actions? Your actions are showing what's true. They're showing where your heart really is. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus says... That love will be expressed through a life of loving obedience to His commandments. It's John 14, John 15. If you have come to enjoy a real relationship with God the Father as your Heavenly Father, then as a son or a daughter with a sincere heart, you are going to be seeking to be pleasing to your Father. If you've come to enjoy fellowship with the Holy Spirit, then you will live your life in a way that cultivates that fellowship, and therefore, you will seek to live in a way that does not grieve the Holy Spirit. Your actions will always prove the true state of your heart. What you do on the outside will always be a reflection of what is true about you on the inside. So Brian Borgman, a pastor that I greatly appreciate and listen to often, He heard another pastor years ago put it this way. He said, Christians are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith is judged by works alone. Christians are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith is judged by works alone. How do you determine whether someone actually has true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You look at their life. You pay attention to their actions. Does their life demonstrate a life of love for Jesus? Or does it demonstrate a life of love for self? That will speak more highly of where that person's soul is than anything else. So the ultimate test of our faith and the evidence of whether or not we will share in the resurrection of life with Jesus our Messiah 
is what our deeds say or prove about us. And that's why Jesus says, at the last day, when he raises some to life and he raises some to condemnation, it's the deeds of their lives that will be used to judge which group they belong to. Because your deeds will, your deeds will always manifest what is true. In other words, the proof is in the pudding, right? And so when Jesus tastes the pudding of your life, you can say it's the sweetest, best, greatest pudding in the world. Maybe it's bread pudding. Maybe it's tapioca pudding. I love tapioca pudding. Maybe you say it's tapioca pudding. Maybe your life is tapioca, tapioca pudding to Jesus, and Jesus takes a bite of that tapioca pudding, and guess what? There's no tapioca in it. What's he going to say about your profession of your life being tapioca pudding? I don't know what this is, but it's not tapioca pudding. It's not our profession of faith that causes us to participate in the resurrection of life merely. It is whether that profession of faith manifests itself with true, living, vibrant fruit being born for the glory of God. And so that's what the day of judgment is going to reveal about every person. What was true about them according to their deeds? Not according to their professions or what they said was true, but according to what they did. That's the barometer. That's the, the thermostat that gauges the temperature of the soul. All right, so some closing thoughts. Maybe you thought those were the closing thoughts. Some closing thoughts. I'll try to be quick here. Jesus' point in John 5, and what we're taking away from this, is that his claim to be equal with God is not mere words. It is truth that will be proven throughout all the ages of eternity. So uh, that's a truth that is being demonstrated right now through the spiritual resurrection of all of Christ's people. And it's a truth that will fully and gloriously be demonstrated on the day of resurrection. Now Jesus says to these religious leaders that their eternal state depends on how they respond to Jesus' claims. And that's true for you and me as well. Your eternal state is manifested by how you respond to what Jesus claims here. If you believe in Him and you honor the Father by honoring His Son, Jesus says you have eternal life. You already have it. You're not waiting to get it. You possess it right now. And the rest of your life will be nothing but an ever unfolding of what that actually means. Getting higher and higher. Every day becoming more and more of what you will eternally be. But if you do not believe in Him, then you have not yet passed out of death and into life. And on that final day of resurrection, you will be raised to a resurrection of condemnation. My friend, which one are you? Which one are you? Not, not which one do other people think you are. But with a sincere conscience and with truth in your heart, a moment of genuine reflection, which one are you before the Lord? The Father has called you to give all honor to His Son with a true and sincere heart. Let me ask, do you honor His Son with all that you are? If you can say, just looking at your life, you know you better than anyone else in this room besides the Lord Himself. You know what's true about you in your heart. Young people, kids, old people, everyone in between, you know what's true about you in your heart. You know whether you love God truly or whether you don't. You know whether you've heard the voice of the Son of God calling you forth to own Him in faith or whether you haven't. Now I'm asking you as someone who's... I'm trying to plead with you right now to be honest and to have this kind of honest dealing with Christ now because the day's coming where you will be forced to have these kinds of honest dealings in the presence of God. And at that point, it will be too late to make any changes. 
right now, in this moment, what is the substance of your life? What do your deeds show about you in your profession of faith in Jesus? Do you love Him? Or not? If you look at your life and you say, honestly, I don't know. Or you say, I, I look at my life and I must, if I'm being honest with myself, I have to say, I don't love Jesus. No matter what spiritual experience I've had in the past, no matter what profession I've made before my family members and other people in the church, I must say, if I'm being honest, I don't think I know the Lord. Then my friend, here's my exhortation to you. And here's what Jesus would have from you right now. You must seek the Lord while He may be found. You must call upon the Lord while He's near because there's not a promise that He's going to be near to you from now on. You have this moment given to you by the grace of God. You have this moment in time handed out to you by your judge in which you are right here right now being called and being pressed to evaluate your state with Him. This is His mercy for you right now. This is His grace. And He says, come to Me while you can. Because the time is coming when you will no longer be able to come. Call upon the name of the Lord in this day of your trouble, for none who call upon Him will ever be put to shame. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, right? This is the hope and this is the promise of the Gospel that when we turn from our sin and we run to Jesus, we will not find Him with the scowl on His face. All heaven rejoices over one sinner who turns from sin. If heaven rejoices over a sinner turning from sin, how much more does the Father of glory rejoice over a sinner who will turn from their sin and run to His Son? For the Lord is good, and He is ready to forgive, and He is abounding in loving kindness for all who will call upon Him. My friend, if you don't know the Lord, or you don't know if you know the Lord, then the call right now is for you to run to Him. Go call upon Him and find His grace and own His love for you in Jesus Christ. Tomorrow might be the resurrection day. Today might be the resurrection day. And if that's the case, which group will you be found in? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And that's why the Holy Spirit says today is the day of salvation. And right now, Jesus' invitation stands open to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's your invitation. You need no other argument. You need no other plea to bring with you into the presence of Jesus in order to ask Him to be saved other than this plea. He commanded you to come. If you feel your need for, to be saved and you sense the dread of knowing that one day, whether you like it or not, you must come before this Jesus, then let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream, for all the fitness He requireth is that you feel your need for Him. If that's you, then you need to run. You need to run to Christ. And don't let anything get in your way of that. Don't let your pride get in your way of running to the Lord. He receives the humble. And He draws near to those who draw near to Him. Now for the believers in this room. I want to speak honestly about the thought of standing before Christ for judgment. You know, sometimes we can, we can become very pious and we can think or operate as if there's no thought of fear in our minds when we think about standing before the Lord for judgment. Um, I know in my own heart 
that the thought of standing before Christ for judgment can make us at times tremble and even feel that shudder of fear in our hearts. But you need to understand this, beloved. For you, the the day of resurrection will not be a day of condemnation. For you, the day of resurrection will be your eternal vindication. No matter how weak your faith might be now, or no matter how stumblingly you are walking across the bridge of Christ unto glory, it's not your strength or the stride in your step that's going to make you get there. It's the, it's the strength of the bridge that's going to make sure that you get to glory. The day when you and all the rest of the world come before the Lord, that is the day when you will see that none of your faith or hope in Jesus Christ was ever in vain. That there was not a moment when you were pleading with the Lord and relying upon His grace and asking for Him to save you and to keep you in His hand. There was not a moment where any one of those pleas was unheard by your Lord. He took note of every tear. He kept them in His bottle. And one day, He's going to repay you for your love to Him. On that day, you will finally know with more assurance than you could ever dream of right now that none of those who call on the Lord will ever be put to shame. There will be no shame. In other words, there will be no shame for you on that day, Christian. Jesus is not going to call you forth out of your grave to stand before Him in order to clothe you in your shame. Jesus was clothed in that shame for you. He took it into the grave. He bore the wrath of God in your place. There's now no condemnation for you to suffer. There's no more shame for you to have. I know at times we can feel that creep of timidity when we think about dying and coming before God for judgment, but that's just because you and I know what we are in ourselves. That's just because we know the sins that we struggle with. We know the ways that we still stumble and we feel the shame of giving in to that temptation rather than resisting that temptation to the point of shedding our blood. We know the shame that attends us whenever we stumble and fall into that, into that temptation. And I know with you as what it's like as a new creature in Christ to struggle to reconcile my new spiritual nature with the realities of my old fallen nature that I still have to fight against. I know what that's like. But beloved, our confidence to stand before the Lord in that day is not our own goodness. It's not our own strength. It's not our own faithfulness. It's Christ. And when Jesus calls you out of your grave and He summons you to stand before Him, it absolutely will not be to clothe you in shame and condemnation. That day of resurrection for you will be for Christ to sink into your soul the fullness and the glory of what it means for Him to be your Savior. For all who put their trust in Him, the Son of God will raise you up to His glory on the day of resurrection and you will have been forever delivered out of death, and the second death will have no power over you. So I plead with you, brothers and sisters, that you would hold fast and hold firm this hope to the end. He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Your Jesus and my Jesus, He he will not fail us. And we have every confidence of that. Lord, that is our hope and that's our confession. That's the only thing we have to cling to. Jesus, thy blood and thy righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy, with joy shall I lift my head. Lord, give us that joy and that assurance this morning. Let us walk in the beauty of holiness and fellowship with you for the rest of the day. Let us commune with you and live a life that demonstrates our love and our faith in you. Lord, we look for that final day when you will raise us to new life with you and you will conform these bodies of our humility
into conformity with the body of your glory. Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that you would bring them to that saving knowledge and give them a taste of your goodness, a taste that sets them running after you for the rest of their lives. Those of us who know that taste, Lord, we pray that you would continue to satisfy that longing. Continue to to meet us, Lord, when we turn to you and encourage us with each step as we march home to glory with you. Father, we pray that you'd be with us, bless this word to our hearts, strengthen us to live our lives for your namesake. Amen. Here a benediction from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we receive that benediction and we pray that the Lord would let us know it in all its fullness. Amen. Amen. May you go in peace.